So anyway, there we were, working through idolatry in the church age. took six months, read and read and read. When I got down, I read some more and then read, and in my sleep, I read. And What I came away with um, from the sabbatical is I've learned to read uh, at least a little better, and I'm thrilled. I cannot tell you how thrilled I am to be with you tonight. Let's uh, take a moment for silent prayer, commit our time to the Lord, and if you need to make an adjustment to Him about keeping short accounts with sin, this would be a good time to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just as the Apostle Peter has said, the Lord Jesus Christ is our only hope. And so we've, we've sung and made melody in our hearts to Him. In Your presence, Father, in the power of Your Spirit, we praise You for our only hope, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we haven't just hoped in the past and trusted Him uh, in our past for our eternal life, but we continue to trust Him. We continue to hope only in Him. Father, let us not be idolaters. Fix our hopes on lesser things. Let us continually rejoice in our Savior tonight as we focus on your word and your expectations for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight I've entitled the message, What Are We Doing Here? It's uh, stated as a question, kind of a rhetorical question, but it's a question I think that most people do not ask. What are we doing here? kind of hard to binge watch on Netflix if you're asking the question, what am I doing here? I did the calculation with uh, my son the other day of how many days you get in an 80-year life, not counting leap years because, well, that would be extra. 365 times 80 is something considerably less than 100,000 days. I think it's closer to 30-something thousand days. Wasn't that right? came up to, to about 30,000, uh, maybe a little more than 30,000. Don't break out your smartphone and ask your calculator. I'm just saying that's not a, a big number when you say uh, a day. Well, how many times have we walked through the day and said, I can't wait till this day is over? Or uh, it's Tuesday and how long till Friday till we get, get the weekend? And we find out that uh, we're wasting our lives. And so that's the question I'm asking on this new series we've begun this evening called On Mission. This is a little series uh, summarizing a lot of the New Testament scriptures on God's expectation for us called On Mission, and I intend to do a lot with this study, but uh, I really intend to do it from the scriptures, as you might imagine. What are we doing here? It also kind of launches off of what Ryan Baker did uh, on the Sunday uh, services for the sabbatical with what impresses you. We've been working off of each other and building energy from each other for years, and uh, so it's a thrill to, um, and I can't, uh, I don't want to be remiss and not remind you what a wonderful job that, that we all know Ryan did in, in the, my absence and how thankful I am for him daily. Um, anyway, but on that score, he's been such a blessing to me, to my family. And so I'm very thankful for him, and I know you are too. So what are we doing here? I want to ask the question and just take a little bit of time with this as an introductory message on a, a discussion of the Great Commission and God's plan for your life. So let's just take some time and think through the question. Look up here. 
Think through the question. Put that away and look up here right now. Samuel, look up here. Put that away. Get your notebook out and your pencil. I didn't want to call you out, but okay, this is the time. Now, what are we doing here is a question I don't think people ask themselves or think about, and Christians don't. And uh, we, this is a question where you take stock of your life. And you say, why am I here on planet Earth? What am I here for? So what do you think the typical answer is going to be? What, if you get caught off guard and you're in the wrong group of friends and the wrong crowd to, at, at the right moment, we could get a very interesting answer from you probably because of the way influences work. What are we here for? Life is so very short. And how do you think people tend to answer this question? Cheryl Crow had a question, an answer to the question back in the early 90s. All I want to do is have some fun. And most of you don't even know what I'm talking about, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> All right. So what, what is the typical answer? Now, this is an important question for you and me to ask, uh, to think about the world we live in, because we're called to minister in it. We're not called to think like the world or to adopt its worldview, but we are to know it and be able to engage it. So it's an interesting thing to think about the world around you. What's the typical answer to the question, what are we doing here? What do you think the typical answer, what are we doing here is, what do you think the answer will be at work? You're in the work context, put yourself in that that position, you're there It's that moment where you have an occasion to talk to someone, a peer, or someone on your level, or a boss, or a subordinate. In that professional context, what are we doing here? Now, if I told you, you are here to glorify God by willfully obeying what He has commanded you as a response of love for His grace in Christ Jesus. If I told you that, and you're at the water cooler with your friends and your co-workers in a professional environment, and I said, well, that's the answer. You can imagine the discordance you'd have in trying to say, well, that's hard to work into this conversation around the water cooler. Because at work, uh, what we're here for is to work. We're here to make a living. We're here to get the, the job done. We're here to, we got to be here on time. As we used to say in the army, in the right uniform, That's success. Just show up on time in the right uniform. Don't have to have any brains. Just on time in the right uniform and you'll be successful, they used to say. Now it's on time in the right uniform and don't say anything off color to the opposite sex and you'll be successful. And that's good advice anyway. You know, that's good manners. Um, But anyway, uh, at work, the answer to the question is not going to be what you and I think the answer is usually. But if you are there as someone who has this answer in your heart, then you are looking intentionally for opportunities to express, to communicate, to encourage. And it might just be by a smile. It might just be by how you deal with an adverse situation that the person warms to you, begins to trust you, and the opportunity to open the door for the conversation is coming in the future. What is the average answer, uh, the typical answer to what are we doing here in the school classroom? In the average school classroom, what we're doing, I think the answer is, we are making the world a better place. Let me be a kindergarten uh, teacher, preacher. That's real common. Kindergarten teacher, preachers. This is what I mean by someone who says, what we're supposed to do, children, is be nice to each other. Can't you be nice to each other? I mean, that message really does resonate in a local church. 
children, be nice to each other, and then everybody will have a happy time. We can take out the clay, and we can play blocks. The kindergarten teacher, preacher, what, what is the schoolroom answer to what are we doing here? Well, we're getting an education, which in today's secular humanist mindset is the solution to all the problems. All the problems of the human race are a lack of education. And what we have to do is improve the education of our people, and then all the problems will be resolved because of the ignorance and the bigotry and the... Pro- I'm sorry, but that's the way we think. We think in a secular frame of mind that education solves the problem. What do you mean by education? Interesting news reports are coming out of the Ivy League schools where you have to be really smart to get in. You got to have really high test entrance exams. You got to have high recommendations and you got to spend high dollars. And you get there and you find out nobody's learning critical thinking. We're learning the, the crib sheet of the cultural left about how to think about life. That's the new, that's the new education. Boy, you can get that for cheap at Three Rivers. Probably a better education if you're learning to think critically. You know, um, so the, but in the average school classroom, I think the, what we're doing here is we're, we're going to make the world a better place, children, by everyone being nice and recycling and making sure that we drive a smart car when we grow up someday and, and you know, wash our garbage before we put it out, I mean, whatever. Um, the average classroom, I think we're trying to solve life's problems through literacy, but once the children can read, don't give them the book, you know what I mean? So we, we all know this. This is a Christian worldview perspective on the average school classroom, but I don't think that their answer is going to be your answer when you ask God what, what to do, uh, what, what are we here for. Um, the question, what are we doing here in the average university classroom, is what, we're making the world a better place on steroids by just listening to Marx and Engels and um, whoever else has a new way of saying uh, let's be socialistic and eventually communistic. And I don't want to get into politics and economics. These are the fruit of the vine. The problem is down in the, in the depth of the origin of this mindset. The mindset is there is no God, so there's no ultimate standard of, of divine righteousness which determines what right and wrong is. That's really the origin of these poisonous satanic fruits, as you well know. The average university classroom isn't going to have the answer that you and I know is the answer to the question, what are we doing here? What are we here for? We will know the answer because Jesus tells us the answer because the Bible has the answer flashing at us constantly if you pay attention to it. But in the average university classroom, it's a totally different answer. And so this is the, this is the problem. You're called to minister in this environment. You're called to, to deal with the culture and in the world, Satan's world system's influence of your culture without being co-opted by it. You're a combatant in, a, in an enemy territory, and it's hard. But the average, uh, the, the typical, typical university classroom is going to have a totally different answer. What do you think uh, on the street, just around you? You talk to the person at Starbucks, should you happen to go there, or if you like your coffee to be dressed in orange and pink. Uh, however you overpay for coffee, when you talk to someone... Um, you know, coffee is a lot cheaper to make at home. But anyway, when you talk to somebody that's not at home, that's out there and about, um, what do they think life is all about? And these are where some of the most interesting conversations come about. But you know where they got informed? In the classroom, in the university classroom, on the television, listening to whatever talking head reinforces their, pre- their perspective they already had. And, um, and so you're just uh, kind of getting a sense of the culture when you go ask the man on the street. 
What, what do you think we're here for? What is life about? Now let's get personal. You ask your kids, what are we here for? Ask Pastor Dave's kids, what are we here for? After tonight, two of them better know the answer. But what are you here for? Left to our own devices, we're going to come up with something like to be good. Because Daddy's asking me, so he knows I'm supposed to say to be a good person. And survey says, "Uh, that's not what you're here for. Jesus nails that. Nobody's good but God. You're not here to be a good person. That's, sorry, but that's not what we're here for. We're sinners saved by grace. And yes, we're being sanctified and putting on Christ, but that's not an end in itself. There's a bigger thing we're being matured to work in, a bigger, a bigger purpose. So around the dinner table, uh, sometimes we'll get convicted by the answers um, that we receive. And this is a good thing for us to think through. When it's your dinner table, young people, and you are the ones who are responsible for the heads full of mush around you, you want to ask these kinds of questions. And when you get bad answers, it's a time for a little catechetical instruction, a little instruction of the children that actually there's a right way to think about this. And you may not feel this way. This may not occur to you from just how you feel, but this is how it is. And eventually they'll learn it. They'll get it. What do people think we're here for at the church get-together? That's an interesting question. Sometimes um, it occurs to me it would be interesting to give a theological quiz. You know, a little Scantron, five bubble. Uh, Not a fill-in-the-blank test. Those are hard. But, you know, just a multiple guess, multiple choice test to see what people in our church really know about the historic Christian faith, for example. What, what people have died for in church history so that we could say it today with the conviction that we say it um, because of the witness that they've borne for Christ with their last breath. What, what do, we, do you really believe that Jesus is very God of very God? Do you really believe in the divinity of Christ? Because it's real, real easy to find teachers who will tell you that it isn't that way. It's easier than you think to find a teacher that'll say, yeah, you've misread Jesus. Let's just, we've got to get in the Bible to really understand who Jesus is as a creation of God or as an angel or some other lesser thing besides very God of very God. And of course, I don't mean God the Father. I would love to do the Trinitarian multiple, multiple choice test of Preston City Bible Church, but I wouldn't want to grade it or see the outcome. I'd just like everybody to get a good, good dose of conviction. Boy, do we have a thing or two we should learn about just the basics of the historic Christian faith. And I'm not putting you down. I think, our, I think we'd do better than most people. But I think we have probably, as a church, have a long way to go on what are we here for. Don't you think? Do you think you'd be surprised by, by clunker answers in the coffee break? We're going to start the coffee break up on Sunday again. Uh, in the fall. In September, we'll go back to the two sessions, do a little informal Sunday school type thing with prayer in the first one, and then a coffee break, and then a longer main service um, at 1045 or so, or 1030. Anyway, in that coffee break, when we ask somebody, so what do you think we're here for? What kinds of answers do you think you'll get? Well, somebody that knows, uh uh-oh, it's a theological question, got to give a theological answer. What are they going to say? We are here to enjoy God and glorify Him forever. Wait, wait. We're here to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I'm sorry. That's what the Westminster Shorter Catechism first question answer is. I know the answer to the question. 
because, as I learned in the, in the army, a soldier uh, will not quit his post until properly relieved. Uh, I've learned my answers to the questions, you know, robotically. Well, that's good if you know the answer. The question is, do we live the answer? And sometimes in the church get-together, I'd rather we didn't, we didn't give the answer we don't live. I'd rather we gave the answer we're living. I'm just here to have a good life. I don't know what you're here for. I'm here to just enjoy myself. And uh, that's probably how most people live. The question I want to ask your culture today is, is there a right answer to what are we here for? What are we doing here? Is there a right answer to that question? See, this is where you and I are going to part ways with the world around us. We're going to say, there's a right answer. There's a moral obligation in this question that everybody needs to embrace. And it's not just for David Roseland. It's not just my truth. It's everyone's truth. There is a right answer to the question, what are we doing here? There's a should. Let me throw a big sentence at you and see if it makes sense. I think everybody in the room better be able to understand this. That's right. Back there. You better get this. The word moral obligation. The word moral obligation. All I mean by that is that we are responsible or obliged, obligated to do something. And morally, I mean it's right or wrong. So there's a right should. There's a should here. The moral obligation of the Christ-ordered life that you and I are called to live, the moral obligation does not begin merely with a consideration of divine prohibitions. That's a big statement of theology that I wrote, but I, it's not that complicated. In other words, let me, let me break that down to, to something a little more bubblegum, a little more cotton candy, have I got you? A little more chocolate bunny, hollow, filled with whipped cream. Okay, ready? Here, here it is. The things that we should do don't begin with what did God say not to do. The nature of the Christian life is, uh, well, hey, what do you think it is to be a Christian? Well, I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I don't do that. I never gossip about anybody. Well, that's not necessarily Christian, but it is a Christian virtue. I mean, that's, that it, that we are described by that, but you haven't captured the essence of what we are as believers as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Moral obligation of the Christ-ordered life does not begin with a consideration of divine prohibitions. Rather, where does it begin? With the consideration of the divine mandates. What does He want from me? What does He want from me? And more importantly, deeper in, the mandates, the commandments of God are merely the, the roadmap for me to do what I want to do, which is love Him. It's the way I love God. Are you tracking with that? The commandments of God are how you love Him. That's why you have them. If you've got obedience to commandments, but you're not loving Him through the obedience, then it's a waste. Because we're in this for a personal relationship with the living God. And the more you get to know Him, the more that becomes a miracle that you could have that. A personal relationship with the living God. All right, does everyone with me? Now we're going to break out the the multiple choice test. The moral obligation, what I should do, of the Christ-ordered life. He's in charge. The Christ-ordered life does not start with what can I not do with the prohibitions of God. It doesn't start with the don't do's. Let me give you an example, just an example. Exodus chapter 20, the 10 words of God. We know them as the 10 commandments in Exodus 20. In, in Hebrew, it's the 10 words, the 10 declarations. And the Ten Commandments, what does he start with? He starts with, I'm the Lord your God. He starts with relationship with Him. 
And yes, no other idols, but in that sense, it's that it, no idols, not, God isn't an idol, no idols. In that sense, it is the declaration of the positive of you're to worship me alone. So we start, in other words, not with what does God say not to do. We start with how do I get closer to him? Draw near to him and he will draw near to you is the heart of Christian commandments. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. This is fellowship with God. And in this way, the commandments of God don't become weighty. His requirements of us, as impossible as they seem, as they are in human frailty, God's, you can't obey God's commands in your own strength. You can't, you can't love as Christ loved in your own power. As powerful as those commandments are, they're light and easy for us because it's how we love him. It's a joy to obey him. Is there a right answer? The moral obligation doesn't begin with the consideration of divine prohibitions. I want to give you some caricatures of the, the, the way people respond to what are we doing here. Ready? Time for some pictures. <laughs> well, I'm not hurting anyone. How I live. <laughs> Caricature bad guy. Oh, I'm not a bad guy. Nobody that you'll ever meet in all your prison ministry is a villain. Nobody. Except the person that has become a Christian and sees his wickedness and says, yeah, I'm a really bad person because I'm a sinner, and I'm, but I'm saved by grace. Nobody who's done the worst possible atrocities is able to generally, generally is, is going to say, yeah, I'm a really awful person and I deserve the lake of fire. Because everybody you'll ever meet is better than somebody that he can think of. Everyone we know isn't like so-and-so. At least I'm not like that girl. And that's the way we do it. We morally relativize based on uh, the worst, the lowest level we can find. And we're at least, at least I'm not that guy. I'm not hurting anybody. It's the way people live their lives as though that is moral. But see, unless you start with God, you don't have morality. Unless you start with righteousness that comes from him alone, you really don't have a basis for saying. And that's a big statement I've made, but, um, but it's a, a distinctly Christian statement. What's wrong with having fun? That's a drunk penguin. Intoxicated, inebriated. It is the first part of Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine for that is dissipation. Uh, I did a little search for a boozy character, and that's what I got. And that's exactly what I wanted, a boozy little character. He's just a fun-loving little drunk penguin. He's not hurting anybody. What's wrong with having some fun? What about the guy that's not overtly sinning, but he still just lives his life for pleasure? That was the study in Christian idolatry, the idolatry in this age. It's not Christian, but it's happening among Christians because we live to please ourselves. What's wrong with having fun? Nothing until it becomes an idol. And what's an idol? An idol is when I give something that should only go to God to something less than God. I take of God's things, myself, and I rob him of what belongs to him and I give it to something less. That's idolatry. That's a big definition of idolatry. Well, I'm not carving images and worshiping them. Yeah, but maybe you're, you're short of this. What's wrong with having some fun? What are most people going to say about what are we doing here? I've never thought about it. 
I've never thought about it. Don't talk to the picture. <laughs> I've never thought about it. It's the way most people are. Isn't that cute? I put the cat up there for many reasons. One, to generate attention, not distraction. The other, the other reason I did this is because he's adorable. And this is probably how most people are about the moral obligations God has placed on our lives. Most people just, they don't think about it. They hide their face. They don't want to think about what God wants from us. And it hurts to do it. This feels like being awakened from a very deep sleep when you're not ready to wake up. And most people that you love, that are your responsible to love, who don't know Christ, are like this. And what you're going to do is you're going to give them that red pill, Morpheus, and they're going to wake up into a world they don't want to live in because it's dark and wicked and broken. And they want it to be okay and just binge watch some Netflix until they fall asleep. And maybe God's going to use you to wake them up. Maybe he's going to use you after something else wakes them up and, and they have to deal with reality. And everybody faces death. Everybody you know is going to die. And everybody you know is going to face a judgment. Whether the judgment seat of Christ for believers or the great white throne judgment for unbelievers. And when we start thinking about that, that everybody I know is either bound for heaven or hell, that helps us have a little compassion. And so we put a cute picture. This is the, this is the average sinful person out there, I think. I, know, I don't really think about what I'm here for. What are we doing here? But I want you and I, you and me, I want us to have a Christian answer to the question. A Christian answer to the question, what are we doing here? I believe the right answer is found by asking the right questions. The right answer to this question, follow me now, will be found by asking the right questions. Take careful notes because this is going to get complicated. The right answer to the question will be found by asking the right questions. ADHD moment. What was the original question again? You said we'll find the answer to the original question by asking the right questions, but what was the original question that will give me, uh, that I'll get the answers to by asking questions? (laughs) That's a very bad oratorial technique to, to confuse everyone. But I'm just showing you that this is how complicated life is. This is how it is. Nobody's asking the right questions because they haven't been asked, what are you doing here? Which is the original question. What are we doing here? What should we be doing here? That's what we're asking. ADHD moment complete. What's the right questions that will get us to the answer? Right question number one, what does God think about it? That's always the right question. If you ask that question about anything you're dealing with, You are on the right track to worshiping him through the situation. Guess what? It isn't about getting to the finish line and saying, I'm done. It's about how you get there. It's about the path you take to get to that finish line. What does God think about it? That's question number one. You might know the answer to that question from prior study. A lot of times, the way God sets up your life and circumstances, you don't know the answer yet because you haven't had to think about it yet, and that's what he's doing with you. He's got a question in front of you. You don't know what to do about it. 
There's a woman that I'm very interested in, young man. There's a woman you may be interested in, and uh, you don't know what to do about this because you're not sure what the relationship she has with Christ and how that's all supposed to work because you've never thought about it because you sat through church and you sat through youth group and you just kind of dithered around, and now all of a sudden you've got to be the disciple maker that you're not. So God brought you here. And so you've got questions, what do I do? Better, better go to the scriptures, which is the next question. What does God think about it will not be what do I think about it and what do I want from it. It'll be what does God say about it? What has God told me? Of course you know the answer is to go to the scriptures. Which means now, which means now you have to do something very hard. You've got to have familiarity with the scriptures. Well, I don't know what all the scriptures talk about. I, I mean, I've read it many times, but I don't, I don't fully ex- exhaust all the knowledge of the scriptures. How can I do that? Well, that's good. That's a very humble position to take. And I think you and I are going to occupy that no matter how much we learn of the scriptures. We're always going to say, I don't know everything, right? I don't know everything God has said, and I never fully exhausted the scriptures. And I'm going to read something that I've worked on for years, and it's going to hit me a different way. And it's going to ch- not, it won't change the meaning, it'll change me. The meaning's the same, but I'm different now because I've been affected by it, and that's how God works. Now, lots of ways you can get at this. You can say, um, what are we studying in church? What does God have us going through as a church? How is what the pastor's been teaching speak to the topic that I'm dealing with? This was my experience always growing up. Whatever I was dealing with in my life was being addressed in the pulpit. It was awesome because God had me in his classroom. He was training me and still does. A lot of you have that experience. What I'm dealing with now in my life is being addressed directly by what we're talking about in Habakkuk or whatever we're studying. Pastor, are you going to get into the Bible tonight? Yes. This is an introduction to a study, and we, we certainly are. But I just, I just told you why. What does God's Word say about what we're supposed to be doing here? Why don't we turn to Luke chapter 2, and we'll get an example from our Savior of what are we doing here? Of course, I'd like you to slip down to verse 41 for this pericope. That's a big word. Do you know the word pericope? Oh, let's learn that word. You want to learn to spell it, don't you? Me too. Oops. It's not periscope. It's not pericope. The E is long, pericope. <laughs> it's one of the funniest words I learned in seminary. Sounding words, anyway. What's that? What's a pericope? Well... It's a chunk of a longer narrative that is its own sort of encapsulated story. It's, it's a, one of the events in the life of Jesus that you can see, um, like the example of Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Well, Luke foretells the same story. And when it's over, that chunk of the story is over and you can block it out. Verses 1 through, I forget how far, 14 or somewhere. That's the story. And in Luke, you get the same story. And those are both pericopes 
the Lucan pericope of the Christ temptation, the Matthew pericope. See, that's what we're talking about. It's, a, it's one of the chunks of the life of Christ uh, in the Gospels, which, um, which tells a story. Isn't that helpful? The Sermon on the Mount uh, sounds uh, very identical in places to the Sermon on the Plain, Matthew 5 through, um, through 7, and uh, Luke uh, chapter 6, and, and part of further, I forget how much, but is it the same event or not? And so you compare the stories, and this is into the gospel studies, but the word is pericope. So in Luke chapter 2, look what happens. You've got several of them. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. That's the Christmas story. That's the story of, of Jesus' birth. Um, and uh, we read it every Christmas. And then you have his presentation of the temple in verse 21, which is another story, different setting. I mean, it's part of the same life of Christ, but it's a different setting. It's a different event from his birth. Um, when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus. And, and so it goes through this. And, uh, and you meet uh, Simeon and Anna in that pericope of the life of Christ. Now I am uh, skipping what Luke does as he skips the entire young childhood development of Jesus I guess we just have to borrow whatever Moses told us about raising kids and Proverbs because and, you don't get anything in the Bible about how they raised him as a little kid. What you get is 12 years old. 12 years old. So that's where we, that's where we take it up. In verse 41. Oh, there we go. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. They're good Jews, and they do obey the law, and they go down for the Feast of Passover to celebrate. And it's this big national festival. To imagine what it's like to have family reunion, extended family every year to get together around the worship of Yahweh. It's a beautiful picture when you think about the feast system in Israel. And it's so foreign to us. We've never been there. And just to think of the crowdedness and how are they getting from Nazareth all the way down to Jerusalem? They're walking. How are they walking in big bands, big caravans, possibly, likely, men in a group, women in a group. You know how we do. Men want to talk about men things or not at all. We're just walking. Glad to be with each other, but we don't have to talk a lot. The ladies, they need to talk about everything. And so you can just imagine the two groups in the caravans headed down. It's a long walk. When Jesus became 12, we wonder if this is a bar mitzvah because it's brought forth at his 12th uh, year. They went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, so they've had the feast of Passover. And after returning, after spending the full number of days, stop that, stop making that noise. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. He stayed behind. And his parents were unaware of it but supposed him to be in the caravan. Now see, that's why you have the, the conjecture that the tradition was the two groups. Joseph assumes, like all fathers will, that the boy's still with his mother. He's not going to join the men yet, even though he's 12. And the mother says, oh, he's joined the men. My baby's all grown up. He's walking the three days journey with the men. And, uh, and so the idea is, that the two parents who are very responsible people, God wouldn't have chosen them otherwise. Everybody who ever left their kid at the gas station on the road trip is let off the hook because even Mary and Joseph did it. 
Um, and so uh, they left him behind in Jerusalem, assuming that he was in the caravan, apparently with the other, one with the other. And so they were both wrong. Ever get that? We both made assumptions. They were different assumptions. We were both wrong. It was option C. That's a lot of times, this is a good marital counseling passage, right? Um, well, she's thinking this, but I think this. And I'm like, well, both of y'all are wrong. It's right here in the script. Anyway, um, Jesus is option C still in the temple, uh, perhaps where he did his reading, perhaps still reading, teaching the scriptures. His parents were unaware of it, but supposed to be in the caravan and went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. So, they, so the caravans are walking. What the job is to do is to walk to get to the next stop, wherever the, um, what's that, KOA stopping place where we're going to camp out for the night. They're going to the next watering hole place where we have our little camp out. It sounds like a really neat thing where you've got a lot of hiking, a lot of camping out, a lot of family get together. I mean, have you ever camped out with your extended family that lives in your, in your town? It's a really interesting idea what that must have been like. Um, when it wasn't raining, I think it'd be better than when it rained, for example. Uh, when I go camping, it always rains. Even if I'm in a tank, when I was in a tank, when we rolled out the back gate at Fort Hood, it would always start raining immediately. And then we would learn that um, the, the seals uh, don't necessarily seal uh, on the hatches of the tank. And so... Um, but, uh, but anyway, they're on this uh, extended camping feast uh, hiking trip with their family. And um, so, th- so they went a day's journey. And when they get back together at night, that everybody comes back together. And they're going to have, they just like, hey, I'm hungry. And, <laughs> and she says, right, we're about to have dinner. And, and uh, where's Jesus? Where's Yeshua is really what they said. They said they didn't call him Jesus. They called him Yeshua because that was his name. And they said, where's, where's our son? Uh, where's Yeshua? And uh, Joseph didn't say, where's your son? <laughs> but um, <clears throat> they didn't find him among their relatives and acquaintances. See, it's a whole community, a hike. And verse 45, when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. So they get there at the end of a day's walk. How far is that? A leisurely pace for a gaggle of men, women, and children is probably something like 10 miles. Okay, which Joseph's like, you know, he's got his good sandals on and he's like, okay, I'm ready to ready to get back at it. He hikes back the next day or that night. But the point is that they go back immediately like, well, we've we've lost our son. So they go back to Jerusalem to find him because he's not with the caravan. And uh, boy, do you ever want to bust out your cell phone at that point? And we hadn't given him a cell phone yet, so we can't call him. Uh, What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And um, what did they do? I suspect they do what you and I do when we can't deal with it. We can't solve it. It's a problem that we can't handle. I just want to show you these people have a crisis moment in their lives, like all parents who love their children, when there's something with the kids. And what do you do? You start praying. You tell God about it. You've got him. He's yours. You gave him to me to serve you with, and I'm trusting you. Please take care of him. And you have that moment of the the kid's really your kid. And boy, did Mary and Joseph have a real reason to say that in this case. Now, all of us as parents can give God our kid, and we should do that every day. But Mary and Joseph have the Son of God incarnate. And so they can do that and have a little Christology perhaps even, and this is all uh, fun to conjecture about, but the point is that they went back to find him, and they're going to search around Jerusalem for him. Then, verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple. After three days. So the first day they walk a day's journey back, And then they walk another day's journey back. 
See, they, they go out to the caravans to the spot where they, they discover he's missing. They walk another day back, and then they spend a day looking for him. And boy, are they worried now. <laughs> They've been, they haven't seen this important child for 72 hours. Now, everybody's kid is important, but this is really important. I mean, like, really important. So they've lost the most important human being ever born. <laughs> and I thought my kid was important, but uh, we all do. Anyway, so they, after three days, they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them. Notice Jesus is listening to them. Let's look at it closely and asking them questions. Now, he's not just a little 12-year-old kid asking questions. Well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? What this means is that when rabbis would sit and congregate, we know from rabbinical literature that's contemporary a little while after this, the, the, the tradition is to ask questions as a way of generating dialogue, almost like Socrates in, the, in, the, in Plato's record of the Socratic Dialogues, almost like that. It's, it's, in fact, it's very close to that, where you're stimulating thinking and you're challenging one another and you say, have you considered this? And you really mean to teach by the question you're asking. It's how they did it. It's not petulant. It's just a little bit um, advanced for a 12-year-old to be doing this. And we find out how advanced. They're list- he's listening to them and, and taking in what they say and asking them questions. And the questions demonstrate his learning because they're challenging to the, to the people. And when you see Jesus' dialogues in the Gospels, he asks questions all the time that challenge them. In fact, one of the great challenges, uh, I'll answer your question if you'll, ans- if you'll answer my question. Did John do his work in the power of the Spirit or by Satan? And they know they're caught when he asks that question. Okay. All who had heard him in verse 47 were amazed at his understanding and his answers. See, he's asking questions that are answers. All who heard him in this discourse that he's having, in this, in this Socratic style back and forth dialogue where he's asking penetrating questions that demonstrate their lack of understanding or, their, or, or get down to the real nitty gritty issues, they're amazed at his understanding and his answers. And so are we, when we read in the Gospels of Jesus' discourses and his discussions, we need to marvel at the way he reasons. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. So what are you saying about me is the next implied thought. Because he is good. Jesus is good and he is God in the flesh. Verse 48, when Mary and Joseph saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, it's all about me. Why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Now Luke is probably receiving this eyewitness testimony like he tells us in the beginning of of the gospel. He wouldn't ask people. He got the account from, he didn't, Luke, the Greek named uh, physician, didn't see any of this. He, he probably knows Mary very well and, and interviewed her to get the, the story and to lay these things out in order, as he says. And so, so Luke is telling this the way he's telling it to, 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 to bring home the issue of who is this boy's father. See, in verse 48, Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Your father and I. And he said to them, what is it that, Why is it that you're looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? The word father is the key to what's going on here. He wasn't in the carpenter shop back in Nazareth. He was in the temple reasoning with the, with the, uh, the rabbis. And so, 
Whose boy is this? Whose hand is he in? Whose purpose is he for? You know, all this is very helpful for parents to remember about our children. Um, but uh, it also, for as Christians, we look at the Lord Jesus and say, uh, this is a great evidence in the scriptures for his divinity. He's identifying his heavenly father at 12 years old as his father. And not in like, apparently not in the typical Israelite sense of God is our father. In verse 50, but they did not understand the statements which he'd made to them. Now, verse 50, Luke's, Luke's editorial statement. They didn't get it. That tells us that Jesus is doing the play on words of Father. They didn't get that he is identifying himself with God, his Father. They didn't understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. Why, if Nazareth is north... Is he going down from Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem is up high uh, topographically, and you've got to go downhill to head north. That's fun. Geography of the Holy Land, and I'd, I'd love to study this with you there someday. It might, we may just have to wait till the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. <laughs> and he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued his subjection to them. Notice that that's a question. Like he has a higher authority that he's serving and he's not necessarily worried about their authority when it comes to God the Father or Mary and Joseph the stepfather. That's, that's an easy one. That's an easy issue. But notice all the children that want to say, I'm serving God and not obeying my parent. Nope. Jesus, who does a better job at this than anybody who has more right to reject the authority of these humans, Jesus continued in subjection to them, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart, which I think that was probably a phrase Luke heard Mary say because he says it two or three times in the gospel account of how Mary dealt with the miracle boy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 52, and one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature, so inside and outside. He grew in height, but also, in, more importantly, in wisdom, and in favor with God and men. We, we often might overplay the problem of the world and the, you know, the angelic conflict and how Satan has deceived the nations and then say, well, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks about me. But the Bible says your reputation matters. Jesus, by example, he grew in favor with God and men. But also, we're supposed to be at peace with all men as far as it depends on us. We're supposed to have a good reputation with those who are outside and so forth. And so um, I love that summary verse. You don't see Jesus' life as a child or as a teenager. You just know this is the summary. He kept growing up. And he had to, as a human, he had to grow in wisdom and in stature. And uh, a child, even a child is known by his doings. So he was growing up and gaining favor from those around him who observed him. So, for example, when a hardworking man who was a business associate of Joseph, saw Jesus in the carpentry shop, he saw a hardworking young man. And he said, that kid is a worker. And Joseph says, you got no idea, he made everything. <laughs> he's the creator. He Joseph probably didn't tell him that, but yeah, he's a, he's a really hard worker. You, you, you'd be surprised the kinds of stuff he's made. <laughs> who holds all things together by the word of his power. See, but as a human, in the human frame, 
he is gaining the approbation, not by seeking it, just by being a righteous, industrious man. He's gaining approbation for those around. Now, are there people throwing rocks at him all his life? Yeah, there are always detractors, naysayers, whatever. But in general, the general will take it. Nobody can say a word about him. Nobody can legitimately bring a charge against him. So we got to be careful about overplaying that. Well, it doesn't matter what anyone says about us. Well, in a sense, it doesn't. But in another sense, uh, you have Jesus' example of growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. Let's look at his answer to his parents, uh, Mary and his stepfather, Joseph, in verse 49. Zoom in on it a little bit, which means translate it from Greek and show you the, how the Greek comes out into English with a little technicolor, um, a little original flavor. He says, and, it's, and he said to them, I should have capitalized the he because I still do that. He said to them, why were you searching for me? For me? And then it's in the pluperfect, which I didn't know that. Uh, the word for knowing is in the pluperfect, so it's like a uh, one step back from the perfect. Um, so not have you known, but had you not known. Meaning this was kind of something that should have been a prior understanding. That's all I get from that pluperfect. But um, it's kind of rare in Greek, and um, the, my Bible translates it like it's not even there. Uh, and it, they, they could be right, uh, but they say, do you not know? Did you not know? I think it's had you not known. Prior knowledge... You were here the whole time. Wasn't there some angels or something? <laughs> right? We, we've read Luke. This is in Luke 2. We've all seen the angelic host and all that. So uh, were, why were you searching for me? So uh, you were in the, in the habit. The last three days, you've been worried sick. And the last day, you've been looking all through Jerusalem for me. Why, why were you looking all that whole day around Jerusalem for me under baskets and, you know, in alleys and stuff? Why are you looking for for me and all the cousins, when I would be right over here in the temple, you know where I belong. That's what he's saying. Why were you searching for me? Had you not known that? And then this is, this is the part that I really want to zoom in on. The things of my father, that in the things of my father, the things, my new American standard has a little footnote. It says, uh, it says the, the, um, my father's house could be literally in the, the things or the affairs. There's no word here. Uh, there's no noun. It's, a, it's, a, it's an article in the plural dative article and the, the things. So you have to even use a, an English word, the things. The affairs, the concerns, the matters. It could be my father's house, but it's plural. So it's better to translate it the things or the concerns of my father. In other words, it's not about the physical geographical location as much as the intention in my father's thinking. In the army, in the military, we have this thing that everybody knows about, but we have a special word for it in the military. It's called commander's intent. Who has a boss? Everybody's got a boss. When you have somebody who has had a boss ever, when you've got somebody you're working for, they do not give you a copy of their brain and then put it in your head so that you understand the way their words are working to communicate meaning. The miracle is that when they say something, usually you understand what they mean. I, my first boss was from southern Louisiana, and I honestly, legitimately did not understand half of what he said. And I tried my best, and I would say, uh, come again. And he would say it again, and it came out kind of Cajun. <laughs> but... Uh, but, but when you have a boss who communicates to you, you know what he said. But you know what else you know? You know what he wants. You know what he means. You know that if he says, hey, sweep up, 
that if there's something else that doesn't require a broom, but if that's a mess, he wants you to pick that up too. It's called commander's intent. And so Jesus is in tune. He's in fellowship with God the Father. And he needs to be about his Father's things, about his Father's business. He is concerned for what God the Father wants. And what God the Father wanted him to be doing was in the temple, God's place, his residence on earth, uh, under this administration, this dispensation, he wanted uh, Jesus to be where he was in his place precincts in his affairs so you wouldn't go look for me over where the tax collectors are don't go look for me over at the roman garrison don't look for me uh where where the you know whatever look for me in my father's place my father's things and so that's why the father's house is is a fair translation but it is an interpretation now then he says so he fronts the sentence watch this real quick he fronts his sentence with in the things of my father and then he says the verb, it is necessary, was the main verb of this clause. And then me is the object or is the, the subject of this in- infinitive, to, a me, to be. So it, it's ne- this is the kind of a secondary sentence, is necessary for me to be there. The, the, the point I'm making here is that the way he states it, the way Luke quotes it, the point is in the things of my father, in the, the affairs of my father is where I need to be, is what I need to be. Uh, concerned about, and it is day, it is necessary as your stock verb for to be, um, to be an obli- under obligation. So Jesus is our example for what are we about? What are we here for? Not us. I'm not here to be running around with the tax collectors of the Roman garrison. I'm here to be about my father's things. And he's a great example, even at 12 years old, obviously, for us to consider what the priorities of life are. You already knew the answer, but I wanted to walk through this with a little technicolor with you and think it through by one example. Another example of our Lord Jesus, if you turn to John chapter 17 as we close, just real briefly, the bulk of our biblical talk, I wanted to be in Luke tonight, but I want to look at John 17. As we all know, this is the upper room discourse. John chapters 13 through 17. The, the upper room discourse begins with a teaching analogy where he washes their feet, ends with a, the, what we call the high priestly prayer, John 17. And so um, this is part of that prayer. And um, one of the most wonderful summaries in all of Scripture of the life of Jesus is given uh, here in the first few verses. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the, hours has, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you, have, as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you've given him he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So I gave them your message so they would know it, and by knowing it they have eternal life. Now this initiates, this is the gospel, okay? This is, this is why we tell people the words of life. Because we want them to have life too. And if they know God, they'll have life. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world. I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me. Out of the world they were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they've come to know that everything you've given me is from you. The focus I want to to draw your attention to is verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. 
That's something to meditate on right there. For your life, for your week, until we come back again. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you've given to me to do. This is an uncrucified Christ. This is before the cross that he said this. This prayer is prior to him dying for our sins. And I believe he isn't talking specifically about the cross, although the cross is included in what he's talking about. He's talking about manifesting God to men, revealing the Father to mankind, which he is the Word who became flesh in order to do that, to communicate God. He has revealed the Father to the world. This is why he is here. Now this is the concluding prayer, on, including part of the, the request for glory, for this reciprocal glory that he's asking for, this concluding prayer on disciples, you're going to be, you're going to, you're going to, I'm going to go away and you're going to receive the Holy Spirit and he's going to equip you to do what I'm going to send you to do. In other words, he has accomplished his mission of revealing the Father and he is passing it on for it to be continued by his disciples who will come after in the same power in which he did it. He is initializing the church age ministry of the gospel. He's initializing, by what he's saying here, by this upper room discourse, what you and I have been called to participate in. And so what are we doing here? The answer is the Great Commission. The answer is Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Acts 1, 8. It is what God has you on earth to be a part of, and it is to do the same work Jesus has done, to manifest the Father. And how do you do that? You tell them of Christ because no one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. You're here to represent Jesus Christ, to manifest God to the world, to the lost and dying world. And there are opportunities that God will open, doors of ministry he will open where you can have the conversation, where you can love someone with the truth, where you can plant seeds, though they may not sprout in your, in your observation. This is about the mission that God has called us to, and that's why this is our introductory message to the study on mission. Heavenly Father, we praise you for fellowship with you through your Son. We thank you for the clarity of Scripture, which tells us what we're doing here. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, our great exemplar. He not only provided our salvation, but he gave us an example that we would walk in his footsteps as we walk in the power of your Spirit. Father, let us be what you want as you empower us. As one great uh, theologian prayed uh, 1,700 years ago, uh, we do ask that you would command what you will and provide the power, the strength in your spirit to do what you command. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.